Hey, hey, what do you know? It's a Monday and the show is out on time. I've been saying for longer than it was exactly true that everything's bad and it's only getting worse. The world's come around to my point of view though, and at least in the US, almost a year out now from the inauguration, it certainly seems to be going that way. The president's interviews, when anybody can work up the stomach to go read them, are getting less and less coherent all the time. The man's tweets more unhinged. The Mueller investigation ever closer, even as the Republican Congress shows itself totally unwilling to accept the results and Republicans in investigatory committees complicit in covering up wrongdoing. The country's shaking itself apart up top, and while the reason those people are there might well be down to grand historical forces, the stuff they're doing, now that they've arrived, is down to deeply broken humanities and very personal failures. I think some of that's down to education, and like all people who think a problem's due to lack of schooling, I think it's down to the right or wrong kind of education, and that's what we'll eventually get around to today. It's looking a lot like the home stretch for SFD these next few months, so get the word out while there's still time to do so. Thanks in Patreon terms to Ben Bolton, Steve Ellie, and V. December's Patreon show will be out this week, late as usual, and January's show should follow right on its heels. Special praise also to Bruno, who's working to lend some of the expertise of a master's degree to SFD's next series on Vietnam, and that is very much appreciated. Keep talking to me, people, and share that clip on the Facebook page. Maybe it will convince somebody to listen. All right, folks, I'm John Coombs. We're talking about the liberal arts again, and this is Safe for Democracy. You will not be able to stay home, brother. Not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on Skag and skip out for beer. I have saved this one opportunity to speak briefly to you about the mindless menace of violence in America, which again stains our land. And I sometimes wonder why we Americans enjoy punishing ourselves so much with our own criticism. This is a pretty good land. I'm not saying you never had it so good, but that is a fact, isn't it? In Iraq, a dictator is building and hiding weapons, and we will not allow it. This is a different kind of war. There are no marching armies or solemn declarations. Its goal to defeat American power. No one, no matter where he lives or what he does, can be certain who next will suffer from some senseless act of bloodshed. We condemn in the strongest possible terms this egregious display of hatred, bigotry, and violence on many sides. On many sides. There's a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart, that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live. We have a problem here in the U.S.
And that problem is that it's too easy to get a federally backed student loan to get an undergraduate degree. Now, hear me out, because this is the er problem that's created all of the other problems we have around college, and it's been going on long enough that even if we made it harder to get loans, the rest of those issues wouldn't go away. It's been getting easier for decades now for prospective college students to get their hands on loans that are guaranteed by the U.S. government. That last bit is important because it means, to the university in question, that it doesn't matter how unlikely you are to graduate and pay the loan back, because the government will pay the school, even as the debt burdens you for the rest of your life, being the only kind of debt in the U.S. that you can't discharge in bankruptcy. The first, most obvious consequence of students being able to get massive amounts of secured loans has been the inflation in the cost of a college tuition. On average, it costs 26% more to go to school today than it did 10 years ago, and it costs 129% more than it did 30 years ago. The confluence of those first two problems has resulted in the rise of for-profit outfits, whose only real goal is to extract as many federal loans from you as possible before leaving you in the educational lurch. And that inflation of tuition has had two pretty important knock-on effects, one of which is more obvious than the other. And that's been the corresponding inflation in the size of non-educational staffs at universities, the expansion of bureaucracies full of managers and loan officers and foreign outreach people, all of which is geared towards getting more money into the school, and all of which makes the school more costly to run. Which has resulted in the second stranger knock-on effect that even as tuition skyrockets, there seems to be less and less money available for actual professorial staffs to run the classes. And that's resulted in the explosion in the use of graduate student instructors and associate professors who are so overworked and underpaid that the quality of education is dropping even as its price moves ever upward. Moreover, the ease with which we distribute student debt means that there are more kids going to college than ever, which seems like it ought to be an unallied good thing, but the direct corollary effect is that it now takes a bachelor's degree to qualify for almost any job, and in times of economic distress, like after 2008, that extended to McDonald's fry cookery. It crowds the non-college educated out of the employment marketplace and ensures that some large fraction of the college educated and indebted end up in work that will never be commensurate with the expense of their education, and which will either never serve to pay off their loans, or which will trap them in loan repayment for the majority of their lives. The other related effect is that there has been a moral shift in how we view college education. At some nebulous point in the before, nebulous because this has been a gradual shift, it was a good thing to go to college. And that's fine. I think it is a good thing to go to college. But at some nebulous point in the after, that underwent a subtle change, and it became not just a good thing, but a necessary thing. And not going to college became, as it was not before, a bad thing, a kind of moral failing, and that's not so great. Because inasmuch as I'm glad that I had the opportunity to go to school, I'm not sure there's anything morally wrong with somebody who wanted to work instead, or whose parents were wealthy enough to make loans hard, but also just not wealthy enough to make affording school impossible. And don't give me that boomer age garbage about working your way through a $50,000 tuition at the same time you're going to school. And I'm not sure there's anything morally wrong with that. And as far as I can see, none of those problems would go away if we managed to make it tough to get a student loan tomorrow. The stigma of non-attendance, the glut of graduates in the job market, and especially the bureaucracies at the schools, all of that stuff would stick around. And the only people getting screwed, as usual, would be the generation just trying to get into college. And what's more, I don't really have an immediate solution to those problems, and I suspect that one does not exist. 
all of which is what made me leery about Bernie Sanders' plan for a free four-year tuition for all. Not because it would be too expensive, or because I don't believe that people should be able to go to college, but because it would compound every one of the problems we just described. Like I said in the last episode, I'm not morally or intellectually opposed to market economics, and, and I can see that turning up the federal fire hose even farther would accelerate all of this stuff, especially the cost of tuition. And given that society has heretofore been very good at making sure that rising students pay for the mistakes that it makes around college, I'm not optimistic that even the first generation would make out too well under that plan. Now, there is a part of Bernie's, and for that matter, Obama's policy that I do like, and that has to do with beefing up technical education. By technical education, just to be clear, I mean creating a clear track, as early as the beginning of high school, where students can learn about and consider as a career skilled trades. Plumbing, welding, carpentry, home building, on and on, including, in this brave new world, computer programming. Likewise, a track that shows students how, towards the end of high school, they could enter a technical school or a community college to pursue an apprenticeship or a two-year degree in one of those fields, rather than going to a four-year college. Economically, I think this would be a positive move. Not just because the Germans or whoever else already have a system like that that works, but because we've got a pretty clear historical example to follow. Bear with me here, because the example I'm talking about is Mussolini's Italy. Italy, coming out of the Great War and through the 20s, had a similar glut of college graduates crowding the labor market, and a similar, though I imagine less acute, scarcity of skilled tradesmen and women. And one of the first things that Mussolini did on assuming power, also, incidentally, one of the few or the only good thing that he did, was to massively increase the technical education and, through other than democratic means, push rising students out of university tracks and into technical ones. And it worked. Or at least it worked wonders for the Italian labor market. Given that Italy stayed fascist for a decade and some years afterwards, I'm not sure you can say that anything they did in the 30s just worked for all the possible understandings of the word worked. So, like I said, I think in an economic sense it would work here in the U.S., But then, eventually, you come to some other senses of worked, and here's where the big, typical liberal opposition to that kind of technical education comes in. How, ask a great many well-intentioned people, including me up until a relatively short while ago, how are you going to tell a kid, a high school kid, that he's got to be a plumber? Well, first, ideally, you aren't telling the kid anything. He's finding out that he likes plumbing, and that it might be pretty lucrative as a career. But second, there's a much more important undercurrent to that opposition. And the question that goes with it is, what in the hell is so bad about being a plumber? And I don't mean that facetiously or from atop my moralizing high horse, but seriously. What is it that's so wrong with plumbing compared to the otherwise white-collar, college-educated life we're imagining for this kid? Plumbing, unlike the service and middle managerial jobs that make up the great bulk of our white-collar employment, is hands-on and direct. It is, in Marxist terms, much less alienated than the labor that most of our white-collar people do. Rather than filing TPS reports or screwing around in the back end of some phone app whose direction you'll never influence, whose customers you'll never see, and whose effect on the world might well be a pretty clear net negative, a plumber gets to meet his customer, see something that doesn't work, and by the application of relatively rare skill, make that thing work again. Those aren't small considerations. Something we've got to realize is that the number of white-collar jobs that have some perceptible effect on the world hasn't grown anything like the number of people competing for those jobs. 
So yeah, you're less likely to be a president or a congressman or CEO than somebody who went to college if you studied plumbing. But you're also less likely to end up in mindless paper shuffling that slowly breaks down the mental fiber and turns you into a Xanax-gobbling corporate robot. What's more, something that we're finally waking up to is that the skilled trades pay well. Look up wages for plumbers and electricians and welders, and you'll see annual salaries that in general beat those of college grads, even years and years out from graduation. And while the great masses of graduates who can't even make their way into secure white-collar drudgery, like, say, me, often end up in the precarious world of freelancing and the gig economy, doing work that may or may not be more rewarding, but is tantamount to living hand-to-mouth, and one broken leg away from permanent poverty, the skilled trades are stable, often enjoy state protection, and have unions to back them up. Somebody who scrapes by Ubering and TaskRabbiting with a 1099 in New York and who tries to write a little on the side seems hands down worse off than somebody who lives okay in New York welding, enjoys a union health plan, and also writes on the side. But that brings me to the other thing that underlies the liberal opposition to technical education, which is the suspicion that those plumbers and welders aren't writing on the side, and couldn't be, unless they'd gone to college. And it's not the work they're doing, so much as the impression that blue-collar, technically educated people couldn't possibly live the same rich inner lives that we, the white-collar, do. And in fact, I'm worried about that too, but not on blue-collar people's behalf, or at least not on their behalf in particular. What I'm worried about is for everybody, including the college educated. I'm worried about it because there's this other trend that's been going on, over the same time period and at about the same intensity of the problems that made up the first part of this show, and that's that university education is becoming technical education. What I mean is that, again, at some nebulous point in the before, even if you were studying in a technical field, like my mom did, for example, in chemistry at West Point, the school was concerned with teaching you the science of chemistry, and maybe some of its history, but it was not concerned with teaching you the science of being employed in the field of chemistry. That was up to whoever employed you. In my mom's case, which is pretty emblematic, GM trained her to work in paint shops, and then they trained her to work in finance. Only one of which has anything at all to do with chemistry, or indeed anything she studied in school. University education was there to train the mind, put the required knowledge in place, for engineers or chemists or whatever, and to give employers, through grades, some idea of how the particular student handled the whole thing. Job training was the province of, well, jobs. And now, at some nebulous point, not quite in the after because this one is still very much going on, schools are trying to push more and more kids into more and more specialized technical fields while whittling down and winnowing away the liberal arts part of core curricula, the literature, the history, and the philosophy. My buddy Blaine, one of the big-time supporters of this podcast, went to the University of Michigan for an undergraduate degree in computer science, and at that, one of the best schools in the country, he didn't take one creative writing class, one literature class, one history class. And the way you can tell that we've come a long way in this direction is that it doesn't sound all that strange. He wasn't studying those things, he was studying a hard science, so why should he have to take any of those classes anyway? The changes are particularly evident and particularly upsetting, at least for me, at my own alma mater. Georgetown is a Jesuit school that, at least until recently, was of the old school. A core curriculum with a healthy chunk of philosophy, literature, history, math for non-technical students, and even theology. 
Along with all that came Jesuit ethics about cura personalis, or educating the whole person, and service to community and country. And God, but you had to opt into that last one. The core curriculum was intact, but getting less rigorous while I was at school. I don't remember ever getting ethics outside of freshman orientation, where I was told repeatedly how integral those ethics would be to my next four years. And if it's any metric on how well the value of service got instilled in our population, Surveys say that both most of my class came in wanting to go into service, and that they left, four years later, mostly for banks and consulting firms. It's particularly egregious at the business school. For my first two years, all buildings on campus were open to all students at all times. Nobody would go to my school's two buildings, the School of Foreign Services, because one was an underground rat warren and the other one looked like a high school from the 50s, but you could have if you'd wanted to. The business school had a beautiful new building named after a famously corrupt and then famously assassinated Lebanese president named Rafiq Hariri that they finished building my sophomore year. Couches and great big windows and flat screens and study rooms and smart boards versus my building where you had to bring your own chalk. A big old student paradise is what I'm saying. And almost as soon as it opened, they closed its doors to anybody who didn't have a business school ID card which was inconvenient on top of insulting, since the campus was cramped and you now had to take a huge detour around the building. But it was indicative of this sense that no longer was the school part of this shared community with shared values, and had instead become a thing apart where there wasn't even a pretense to well-roundedness or a service-oriented education. They were there to train up to get money. And maybe that's why these changes track so well with the expansion of student loan programs under the federal government. If we, the society, are going to pay for all these kids to go to college, they might as well come out knowing how to do something. And in today's America, what's more worth knowing how to do than get money? And why am I crying anyway? If a kid came to Georgetown to learn how to get cash and he wasn't interested in educating his whole person, who am I to gripe? What is it that's so great about an effective liberal arts education anyway? What does it do for you? And what's more, what does it do for society? given that there's nearly nobody more reviled in today's America than an unemployed philosophy or literature major. Well, I, I did a whole show on this based on an essay from Peace Corps called Liberal Arts, so you might already have some idea of what I think. But if we break a liberal arts education down into what are currently, versus in olden times, its basic constituent parts, literature, history, and philosophy, I think I can come up with some pretty concrete reasons for all three. Literature gets a very bad rap from high school English classes, most of mine included, which revolved around picking out metaphors and similes and parts of speech to apparently no purpose at all. But the study of literature, especially in your core classes before you get into postmodernism and semiotics and all that, is something that opens up other people's minds and worlds and time periods to you right now. With the added benefit that instead of trolling through Amazon, you're handed a set of works that humanity has decided, for various reasons, are worth your time. And if you're lucky, you've got a person at the head of the class that can teach you, yes, what metaphors and similes and foreshadowing are, but who can also explain to you how they're tools that you can use to unlock just why those works are important, and why they sound as good as they do on the page. Further afield, if you're reading the right books, you're confronted with moral dilemmas that reflect back on society and societal life. Jean Valjean steals a loaf of bread to feed his family and serves hard labor for it. When he's peacefully living as Monsieur Madeleine and somebody else is brought in as Jean Valjean, he finds that he has to admit that it was him to save the other guy. What's right? What would you do? 
Moreover, by asking you to write and to try to emulate some of those works and asking you to put to use some of those same tools, literature gives you a means of self-expression that might be tough to come by on your own, if not impossible. History, you folks know that it's my special preoccupation. We in the U.S. like to imagine that we're our own men and women, unburdened by the past, without roots to restrict or restrain us, and that each of us can and will make our own world as we see fit. But humanity in the sense of that which makes us human doesn't give a whit how we see ourselves. We will act like our parents did before us and our ancestors before them. We are rooted in a time and a place and a culture, and not learning about any of it will only ensure that we act exactly like the people before us did, only without the benefit of hindsight. It's only at base through a study of history that you realize that there's nothing new under the sun and that there's a precedent for everything. And farther in, it's only through a more dedicated study of history that you discover precedents you never knew existed, and which might have been hidden from you by the machinations of state education in high school, like all of the awful stuff the U.S. has done in SFD's history shows. Philosophy now. Philosophy's the big one, even as it, with every passing gear, becomes the greater and greater recipient of opprobium from people who think we ought to learn something useful in college. A basic philosophy class, that is, a class in civics and ethics, will begin to teach you about the philosophical, very philosophical bases of society. It's not something we all necessarily come away with from history and government classes in high school, but the founding fathers of the United States were avid philosophers. And in the right kind of class, you'll begin to learn, for example, that our Constitution and Declaration weren't holy writs handed down from God, but interesting new experiments during the Enlightenment not departures from, but an integral part of the liberal philosophical thought going on at the time, successors of Hobbes, Locke, and Rousseau. What's more, you begin to realize that because they occupy a historical place in Western thought, there's nothing wrong with pointing out that they have flaws, or in proposing solutions for them. The conservative trend in constitutional interpretation in this country, where we have to continue returning to original intent, is a thoroughly unphilosophical model, and one that locks us into a predetermined government and destiny, rather than making us masters of both. Philosophy is the antidote to that kind of thought, and the first step on the road to realizing that we can and ought to fix what's going on around us. In that same basic philosophy class, you will, if you're lucky, begin to question long-held beliefs. It's not just felt but axiomatic in the United States that we have the best system of government. Maybe some folks have an easy time getting there on their own, but it wasn't until I was sitting there in political and social thought that anybody had ever asked me, including myself, what best system of government even means, and then asked me to look at some others and try comparing them. Likewise, it wasn't until that class that anyone ever asked me to examine why it was that I thought an American life was worth two or ten or two hundred thousand Afghan or Iraqi or Somali lives. And if my loyalty towards American life stemmed from shared citizenship, then how far did that, or how far should that loyalty, extend? Philosophy, even in the most basic class, is anathema to hearing America first and accepting it as a good idea without thinking it all the way through. And that's the third and maybe most important thing that philosophy gives you. Thinking things all the way through. Often enough for the first time. There's this problem they gave us one day in PST, that same class, and it's a pretty classic problem for intro philosophy classes. Imagine you're walking to work one day, and on that walk you pass a pond. 
In that pond, as you're passing, you see a drowning child. The pond's shallow enough that you can just walk out there, but deep enough that the kid is definitely going to die if you don't. And the problem asks first, would you save that kid? People pretty much say yes to that one. Then the problem asks, is there a positive duty to save the kid? Or, in other words, would it be a moral wrong to stand on the shore, able to save him, and let him drown? People also, in general, pretty much say yes to that one. Then the problem asks, well, what if you were wearing a new suit, or had a really important meeting or job interview to get to? And it escalates for a while, and then the problem pivots and asks, well, if you know that children in, for example, Myanmar are dying, and the only thing between them and dying is the cost of a new suit, then don't you have a positive moral duty to donate that much? Or to fly out there yourself? In the end, under the moral framework you set up for yourself answering questions about the kid in the pond, didn't you yourself agree that it would be wrong not to donate literally everything you have to saving kids in Myanmar? You might find yourself saying now, and indeed pretty much all of us do say no every day, but for the first time, probably, philosophy has confronted you in that class with the fact that you've got a bunch of incongruent ideas in your head, and with the notion that maybe you ought to try to sort them out. Because even if you end up deciding de facto that you don't owe the kids your shirt, given that you've still got it on, nobody leaves that class without beginning to struggle to figure out just why you don't do it. What's the disconnect between a kid in front of you and a kid in Myanmar? What's the disconnect between losing a shoe and donating the money? A lot of American politics is confused in this way. Take the Republican stance on abortion. It is to them a bad thing, and I think a lot of the liberal side of the argument wouldn't mind saying that fewer abortions is probably a good thing to work towards. Well, what are the concrete steps we can take to reduce the quantity of abortions in this country? Good sex education, widely available prophylactics, robust programs both to help single mothers and to support adoption are all statistically the best methods we have. But if you look at the Republican platform, they oppose all of those measures. The only things they do support, restricting legal means of terminating pregnancies and abstinence-only education, are two methods that, respectively, do nothing to decrease the numbers and actually increase them. Give every member of the Republican base a good philosophy class, and there's a fair chance they might start to wonder whether they've got something tactically wrong with what they're doing, or, more truthfully, that they've somehow been had. And this is what I'm talking about. Not making sure that plumbers also have to get a PhD in a liberal art any more than business school grads do now. Just a few classes, maybe a couple in each subject, for everybody, technical and four-year, without any pretense that they're going to be useful in getting a job or making more money, just doing it because it's good for us. With the caveat that sometimes it does make us better at our jobs, even as it makes us better members of a human society, where we've all got no choice but to live together and tolerate one another as best as we can. It's hard to imagine an economist who'd gotten a really effective liberal arts education continue to believe that you can treat a human as a perfect decision-making machine. All the evidence of history and all the minds that you've pried open through literature make it abundantly clear that we're the least rational things in nature. It's hard to imagine so many of my classmates, if they'd gotten a really effective liberal arts education, looking between a government job and one that's a thousand times better paid doing exactly the same work at Deloitte and saying, yes, the second one is the more moral choice. 
It's hard to imagine, if we were all getting really effective liberal arts educations, an entire culture growing up around the god-kings of Silicon Valley, who often enough spurned college because of all the unnecessary liberal arts classes, where it is an accepted truth that the best thing to do is disrupt society, regardless of the consequences. All of history and literature and philosophy will tell you that when you screw somebody's life up, it usually stays screwed, and that technology hasn't been saving humanity, but getting the better of it since we left our idyllic lives as hunter-gatherers behind and started plowing the fields. If you want to go even further, think back to the Kennedys and the whole class of East Coast American aristocrats of the last century. There may be no group of people in this country's history, through prep schools and the Ivy League, that got a more thoroughgoing and less technical liberal arts education. They had the idea, being at the top of society from birth, that it was their right to be in charge of it. And that's not so good, but it's endemic to all aristocracies everywhere. What's more indicative is that although they believed they deserved those senatorships and presidencies, which isn't so good, once they got them, they believed that what they owed in return for their positions was service to society. Society had very nearly handed them kingships, and in their eyes the right thing to do was become shepherds. Well-paid, well-educated, incredibly privileged shepherds who didn't want to brook much challenge to those kingships, but shepherds nonetheless. In the long history of the world, only a few generations have been granted the role of defending freedom in its hour of maximum danger. I do not shrink from this responsibility. I welcome it. I do not believe that any of us would exchange places with any other people or any other generation. The energy, the faith, the devotion which we bring to this endeavor will light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. And so, my fellow Americans, Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. My fellow citizens of the world, ask not what America will do for you, but what together we can do for the freedom of man. What about the aristocrats of today? Take Mitt Romney. He came from exactly the same milieu on the East Coast, and he used that starting point to found Bain Capital, which tore up companies to, in the words of today, disrupt them, to the incredible benefit of the partners at Bain. On his road to the presidency, far from ask not, Romney made the biggest deal of President Obama's assertion that no matter how successful you are in America, you didn't build America. It's schools, or it's roads, or it's people, or any of the other things that come from society and which make up the difference in the success of a Mitt Romney born into wealth in Massachusetts and a Mitt Romney born to an AIDS-infected mother who dies 10 days out in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. What's more, look to the real new American aristocracy, the bankers and brokers who dominate the economy and who felt in 2008, in the wake of tanking not just ours but the world economy, that the best thing to do wasn't reflect but to scheme up new and better criminalities through which to relieve the great mass of people in the United States of their meager wealth. A life of service, it is not. 
Maybe more concrete than all of that is voting patterns in 2016. If you want an indicator, a single indicator, to tell you who voted for Trump and who did not, well, that's race. But if you account for race, your best bet is checking whether somebody went to college or not. And I don't think that's down to wealth or anything else except the liberal arts. The things that teach us that the world is bigger than our family or our tribe or even our country. That America first is a load of dangerous nonsense. That we owe a greater loyalty to our fellow men than we do to our wallets or our careers or our treasured racial hierarchies. We've got a problem in America, and in fact, we've got a few. I don't have an easy solution to any of them, and if solutions exist, like technical education for our problems with college, they're going to be far from simple or straightforward. But I do know that every step we take away from the liberal arts is another step we take towards more and more terrible Donald Trumps, and that if we leave them behind as we work towards solving our many problems, we'll be working towards the destruction, after 242 years, of a country that, maybe more than any other in the world, had its birth and its foundation firmly planted in the liberal arts. Thank you.